Dr. Beth Mollison. And I'm Dr. Alyssa Watson. And thank you all for joining us today in the Veterinary Break Room, where we have short conversations and chat informally about relevant topics in veterinary medicine. And today we're going to talk about gonadectomy and more specifically talking about the timing of the old spay and neuter, I guess, whether or not to do it at all, and maybe some of the pros and cons that come along with that. So I feel like it's a topic I'm sure many of you noticed have been talked a lot about in recent years. Do you feel that way, Alyssa? I feel like when I was in vet school, it wasn't really something we talked about a lot about the pros and cons or trying to find the perfect time for a certain individual pet. Have you noticed that? So certainly the timing, like you said, you know, should we be waiting, especially in larger breed dogs and giant breed dogs to spay and neuter a little bit later is something that has, I feel, had a lot of emphasis in the last, you know, five, five or seven years. Um, We've had this conversation on the Clinician's Brief podcast with a couple experts. But one of the things that I wanted to talk with you about, Beth, is, you know, just like me, you're a general practitioner. And so how do we take these recommendations that are coming down and how are we using them, you know, actually in clinical practice? Um, Because sometimes that's a really fine line to walk. Yes, I love that because we get so much, you know, these wonderful researchers that compile all this data and do all these research projects so that we can make these decisions for our pets. And then of course, I feel like it is really on our shoulders as general practitioners to figure out what makes sense? Is this practical advice? Is it not? And I don't know. I feel like, you know, when I graduated from vet school 10 years ago, it seemed like there was a fairly standard recommendation of traditionally spaying and neutering between five, you know, roughly six months old. Um, that the pros of that were, of course, reduced population in pets. You didn't see a lot of libido driven behaviors yet at that age. I specifically remember the one thing that was hammered into us was that if you spay before the first heat cycle, you are getting that reduced reduction of uh, mammary neoplasia. And that's really where it ended. And now I feel like, like we said, in recent years, all of this new data has come out about all of the different factors really that are influenced by the spay or neuter status of a pet. Again, not only the timing, but the, you know, do we do it at all? And and if so, when? So we wanted to run through just a little bit on what the, the data shows. And Alyssa, I don't know, but when I look at this, it just, it makes my mind kind of um, run wild because when you look at all of these different factors that are affected, there's so much nuance to it. So just for example, I mentioned the mammary neoplasia. This goes back to, I think, one of the the things, and we will um, tag two articles for our listeners if you want to read. I think they contain a lot of good information, but when you read them, again, I feel like it it's a little overwhelming to see all of this information. Um, one thing they emphasize, too, is relative risk versus absolute risk. So when it comes to memory neoplasia, you know, maybe the the overall risk is not that big to begin with. So even though we are seeing a slight reduction in risk, does it outweigh, you know, maybe some of the other cons? So it's all very interesting to read about. Um, I think they also, one of the things they talked about a lot in this article was the breed and how you should really take into consideration the breed. Um, Some of the other things, Alyssa, do you want to run through some of the other uh, kind of medical conditions that they mentioned? Sure. Absolutely. Like you said, you know, we all, that mammary neoplasia, I hear you, it was drilled into me as well 20 years ago. Um, And, 
you know, that, that idea that you kind of hit on between relative risk versus absolute risk is not just for that particular condition. I mean, we have this all the time. It We're bombarded with it, you know, in society, in the news. They talk about, you know, smoking increases your risk by two times. Well, you know, what does that truly mean? And and so taking a step back and remembering that, you know, your absolute risk is your likelihood of a particular outcome, you know, such as developing a disease during your lifetime, whereas that relative risk is the difference between that absolute risk and then a certain population. Um, you know, so because I think they've always, you know, the numbers that stick out was, you know, it was like 16 or 17 times uh, increased relative risk for for developing mammary cancer if you waited, you know, till after the first heat cycle. And so, but that's not the same as saying, you know, the the absolute risk is 16 or 17 percent. Um, so that's, yeah, those are really important. And then when you're looking at that, you know, the other thing that, that I have a hard time with is like, okay, well, how do you gauge which cancer is worse? Okay. So if you've got exactly. an increased risk of mammary cancer, but a decreased risk of osteosarc, um, because they have shown, you know, some of these studies have shown a slight decreased risk for other, you know, forms of neoplasia. So osteosarc, hemangiosarcoma, mast cell tumors, even lymphoma, transitional cell carcinomas, you know, so, so some of those surprised me specifically like the lymphoma risk um, mm -hmm. was one that I had not been aware of, you know, prior to the last couple of years. Um, but even that is when you dive into the numbers, I think they, they said the lymphoma risk was definitely decreased for intact females, but not intact males. So kind of what you were saying, there's so much, there's, there's so, so much information and to try to then make a blanket recommendation that you can clearly communicate to not only your clients, but also the staff. So everybody's right. on the same page, I think, I think is hard, you know? I agree. And even when we talk about other, you know, the risk of other neoplasias, like you mentioned, the other factor they said is it's hard to know how much of this is that maybe spayed and neutered dogs might have a different type of lifestyle and might be living mm -hmm. longer and therefore their risk for these other neoplasias is higher in general. So again, I feel like every time you kind of feel like you wrap your head around one data set, then you're, you know, kind of start thinking about these other variables, like you said, gender or breed. Another thing that was hammered into our heads, I feel like in vet school, of course, was pyometra, um, mm -hmm. rightfully so. Of course, yeah. intact animals are the ones that intact females are, are at risk for pyometra. But then the data shows that almost all dogs experience that after the age of four. Mm -hmm. Oh, and then of course there were a few breed exceptions. Yes, there were. Alyssa, I, I do knew. know. I do. <laughs> Tell the us the only breed. reason I know the breed exception is because it's um, at least one breed that is predisposed to pyometra early is Dog de Bordeaux or French Mastiffs, and the only reason I know that is because I have one. <laughs> <laughs> right, but exactly. So it was kind of like you know if, if maybe pyometra is our biggest concern for whatever reason, then we you know could wait till the age of four or maybe reap some benefits. Uh, up until that age, um, incontinence. I don't feel like that was one that was ever talked about in vet school, unless I, I um, 
eliminated it from my brain at some point. But I feel like we hear that talked about a lot now. And again, breeds where large breed dogs are the ones at risk. So maybe when we're determining the best age to spay or neuter a small breed dog, maybe that's a factor that doesn't come into play so much. Um, And again, that one, of course, had stats that were broken down into like spayed before the first heat cycle, spayed between the first and second heat cycle, you know, all those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. And then in the back of my mind, I'm like, all right, well, say maybe you do have a dog that's dribbling urine. But again, like you said, how do you weigh what's worse? Is dog dribbling urine or a dog that every time they're in heat, you have to put a diaper on them because there's, you know, other issues to to worry about. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. um, I mean, maybe, yeah, maybe I'm, I'm being too dramatic about it, but it just feels like so much to wrap your head around and feels very overwhelming as a general practitioner that suddenly, you know, every pet owner out there has an individual pet and they of course think that recommendations should be made around their individual pet. But when we look at the bigger picture for us general practitioners, to me, Alyssa, I don't know how you feel. It feels almost impossible to make a perfect recommendation for every pet based on this information. Yeah, I think it's going to be impossible to make the perfect recommendation. <laughs> I I agree with you. One of the last things um, that they talk a lot about in both articles is joint disease. And I don't think we covered that one. Um, Absolutely. So increased risk of joint disease, specifically cranial cruciate ligament, you know, injuries, I think in both males and females, uh, the risk for that was quite a bit higher than, than other joint diseases like dysplasia and things. But also we know that spayed and neutered dogs are, are tend to gain weight easier, you know, so then I wonder how big of a role is it really with, with the reduction of hormones as opposed to the fact that they tend to be overweight. Um, so, so again, all of those factors coming in. So <laughs> you're right. You're right. And that's another huge one, of course, that, that, is definitely worth mentioning and I think worth people reading more about because that's one that I hear a lot of my pet owners asking about. I think maybe that's the mm-hmm. one that is most commonly um, the risk that's most commonly known by our pet owning population. And the other surprising thing about that data to me was, you know, they mentioned golden retrievers and Labradors being really affected by the timing or whether to, to spare neuter at all. But then other breeds that you would group together in that large breed or giant breed category, I think they said like Collies and Great Danes, they really didn't notice a difference in the spayed and neutered versus versus intact animals. So that was even more mind-blowing information to me that, um, you know, without knowing the details of some of this research, it can still be hard to even group all large breed or giant breeds together in the same recommendations. Yeah. So... I will just straight out ask you, what do you say to, and let's talk specifically about large and giant breeds. So we're going to say, you know, anything over 70 pounds. You know, when I think of these dogs, I'm thinking of the Great Danes. I'm thinking of, you know, the really big shepherds, the Dobermans, like things like that. Mastiffs. Yes. What are our recommendations? And to me, it matters a little bit whether we're talking spay or neuter, um, you know, in our clinic, I would say the overall recommendation is that that gets portrayed to our our clients is still roughly the six month mark. I will go out of my way to talk about larger breed dogs, especially males, um, about delaying that until closer to a year or ideally beyond a year. Um, females, honestly, a lot of it's a personal thing because to me, as a surgeon, knowing that 
I am the the doctor and we're the practice that's practical for them to come to. You know, they're not going, most people aren't interested in pursuing their spay at a, at a specialist center or something like that. To me, I hate large breed dog spays. And there is our statistics that show that the risks of large breed dog spays are higher and the complication rate is higher for those bigger dogs or older dogs. Um, so that's kind of our generalized recommendation. What about you guys, Alyssa? Have you made a lot of changes? So I have made changes, you know, certainly over the years. I definitely don't recommend spay or neuter at six months old for, for very large or giant breed dogs. Funny enough, the reason, you know, I, I think I'll you know, and the audience knows I'm a lover and owner of, of large and giant breed dogs. The reason I started changing my recommendations was more because I wanted to, you know, strongly recommend prophylactic gastropexy in those breeds. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to wait until they were closer to their adult size. And so I've been kind of recommending it, you know, so that I could pair those procedures for a long time. Um, but I agree with you. It, it, it definitely, you want to have a surgeon that's comfortable with, with large and giant breed dog space. And even I, I love surgery and I love doing, you know, the, the large space, but even I get, start to get uncomfortable when I have a dog, you know, that's 130 or 150 pounds, you know, mm -hmm. um, not as much for the neuters. Uh, I feel like a neuter, you know, even at that size is, is a little bit easier. Everything's on the outside. I can handle things <laughs> <laughs> if, if you those can complications at least. But, right. but generally, like I said, I'm recommending a gastropexy too. So I'm still diving right. into that still huge, in there. deep chested yep. stomach, you know, and, and especially if they're overweight, that can make it really hard too, you know? And so a lot of times waiting, you know, um, a long time and just, I think on average, our pet population is a little bit on the heavier side. I don't <laughs> Right, right. And I think <laughs> even, average. you know, when we talk about surgeon comfort level, I think mm -hmm. even a confident surgeon is still dealing with the constraints of time. I think mm -hmm. there's still inherently an increased time that it takes when you're doing those larger spays. I know I have had to call a surgical assistant in, so manpower, mm -hmm. yeah. um, you know, to help even those large gastropexies, you know, surgical assistant to help with visualization and, mm -hmm. and all that fun stuff. And I think especially in right now's veterinary climate where both time and extra hands are a really limited factor to me, those, those types of things should be considered when we talk about the overall picture. Um, but it gets complicated because again, every, I think most of us would agree that a lot of pet owners out there would really like an individualized recommendation. And that's just so hard to do. I feel like there's so much to cover, especially in a young dog when it comes to communicating recommendations. I think you could easily have a 30 minute conversation just about the pros and cons for an individual pet and when or if to spay and neuter that to me, it just a lot of times becomes not practical. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and another thing that, you know, needs to be considered is cost, the cost of medications, the cost of anesthesia increases, the cost, you know, of all of that increases and is the pet owner 
aware of that, okay, and willing to go ahead and have that increase in cost in order to have the procedure. Um, you know, we've talked before about about stereotypes about money, and so that is one another place where sometimes I'll get pushback from owners, and some of it is in the way that our fees are structured, um, which kind of makes me curious about about you. We know I know you do work for a corporation that does kind of these wellness plans, and so mm-hmm. oftentimes when you have wellness plans. Uh, for puppies and kittens, the spay and neuter is is included. For our particular practice, we have we have those types of plans as well. But if the animal is over fifty pounds or over a year or you know in heat or whatever, there's additional fees. And so sometimes mm-hmm. I can get pushback if I say, okay, well we want to wait, but then your your wellness plan is not going to cover your spay anymore. You're going to have to pay an additional exactly. hundred and fifty dollars or something on top of this pre-agreed upon, you know, amount of money for your preventive care. And sometimes, you know, that makes people feel like I'm pushing services on them, which is not my intention at all. Yes, absolutely. We have this the same thing where there's additional, you know, in heat fee or um, not that that's what we're talking about doing this in right. heat, but we have in heat fees and overweight fees. You know, if any pet that's at that mature level, there is an additional cost. And like you said, suddenly it feels like you're making this recommendation for monetary purposes, which of course couldn't be further from the truth. Cause I think <laughs> we'd all rather do them when they're small and young and recovery and surgery is going to be easier if we're talking mm-hmm. about what we want to do for our own personal benefit. Um, and the other thing too, is I think sometimes to make these recommendations, there's so much stuff we have to cover. I don't know if you ever feel like this, Alyssa, but sometimes there's the group of people who want all that information and they are confident in making their decision based on it. There's another group of people that is resentful of you putting that decision-making pressure on them. Mm-hmm. And they look kind of stare at you like, why aren't you telling me what to do? You're right. the vet. You should know what's best. You should know. Yes. And when there is no perfect answer or perfect suggestion – I think it's just a lot for us as vets to to take on that full responsibility of deciding, you know, trying to guess what cancer matter does cancer matter more? Does joint disease matter more? Does incontinence matter more? Um, if does surgical not complications. mating with your litter mate matter more? Because <laughs> we have, I have clients that have come in over mm-hmm. my twenty years of of practice that have a boy and a girl, and and honestly question me like, oh, they wouldn't do that. Yes, they would. <laughs> they know better. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And that's a huge thing that we we didn't cover yet was, is, of course, leaving pets intact can can uh, wreak havoc on the pet population issue, um, just as a from a public health standpoint, but also for these individual pets or individual owners that aren't planning to breed their pet and suddenly were the ones that have recommended their dog wait till it's three years old or whatever the case might mm-hmm. be. And now suddenly they have a pregnant pet or... Right can't take it to the dog park and get kicked out of a boarding facility or, you know, whatever the, the, the case might be in certain situations. Or living situations too. There are some, you know, there are some apartment complexes or living situations that require your, your pet be spayed or neutered. There's yes. also ordinances in, in different cities. Las Vegas is one of them. We have a city ordinance that says all pets should be spayed and neutered by the time they're four months old. You can get a permit, but you have to pay, you know, you have to pay 
Fascinating. Yeah. I so. didn't know that. That's that's yeah. interesting. <laughs> Yeah, do you feel like I wish there was some maybe this is our um, million dollar idea, Alyssa to make I feel like there should be some sort of calculator where you can put in the pets breed, weight, age, maybe what matters most to the owner, you know, where you situation. live, we could, mm-hmm. we could build a whole algorithm. I know. I It'd know. be great. <laughs> Maybe we should. Um, and and yeah, you know, I think, again, this takes us back to the fact that all of this data is wonderful to have because in certain circumstances, I think it's useful. But to me, it just, it's so overwhelming as a, as a general practitioner. I feel like every day there's one more thing that I'm supposed to know or <laughs> supposed to be in charge of or supposed to... Um, you know, be able to do differently or better. And, and it just, you know, all that, all that information can sometimes feel a little bit fatiguing to me. Yeah. But you know what? We all do the best that we can. That's, that's, I say, I must say every single week, I say we do the best that we can with the information that we have at the moment. Absolutely. The information, the resources, the knowledge, like you said. So I think that's what's important to keep in mind. If anyone else else out there is feeling fatigued by this decision making, we're right there with you. And all we can all we can do is our best with the resources we have. Yep. Yep. So and as Dr. Beth said, there are some great, you know, articles. There's some great expert opinions out there. We'll link a couple of them down below. Um, so But with that, shall we move on to our win of the week? Do it. Um, Yeah, mine is somewhat related to this where we're talking about ongoing learning and that that is I get to go to VMX. Uh, Maybe when this this airs, it'll be post VMX time. But um, this weekend, I'm going to VMX, um, which is very exciting. I haven't been in probably six years, maybe. Um, so hoping to, to, of course, attend a few conferences, see some coworkers, as, as people may or may not know, a lot of clinicians, brief employees are kind of scattered across the country. So it'll be, should be fun to meet up with everyone and always good to see what's new in the industry. Um, but what about you, Alyssa? That's no, that's wonderful. I wish I was going to VMX. Um, I wish so I too. Would, I'm such a huge Disney fan. I probably would cut out and head yeah, over to so the We parkers. wouldn't see you at any conferences or any uh, <laughs> sessions, but so, so that's why I don't go to VMX. It's it's too dangerous for me. I'd spend too much money. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> too much money at the parks. Um, my win of the week is not anything as exciting as yours or clinical (laughs) or anything, but it was something that we had mentioned. I had mentioned that when um, we did our closing of the year episode, our closing of 2022, that I was going to try to do a little bit more with my flexibility. I have been consistent so far with my New Year's resolution and I, I couldn't touch my toes before, like, and I can touch my toes again. Wow. <laughs> it only took a I, couple of weeks. <laughs> I say that's the most maybe unique win we've had in a long time, Alyssa. I'm so embarrassed that I could not touch my toes. But So dare we ask like what you've been doing to get to this point? It's, so I have been stretching. I found a couple YouTube videos, you know, that go through stretches. And then I, instead of reading my phone before bed in that 15 mm-hmm. to 20 minutes before bed, that's another thing because it's helped with my sleep. I listen to that and stretch instead. So, and now I can I'm so my proud toes. of you. <laughs> I won't make you stand up and show us, but I'm <laughs> proud of you. 
so anyway, thank you to all of our listeners for um, joining in today and we will talk with you all soon. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Veterinary Breakroom. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts, including a video version on YouTube. While you're there, make sure you subscribe, rate, and review. You can also listen to or watch our podcast episodes on our website at cliniciansbrief.com podcasts, or drop us a line at podcasts at briefmedia.com. Veterinary Breakroom is a brief media production produced by Alexis Ussery and co-hosted by Dr. Alyssa Watson and Dr. Beth Mollison. 